I firmly believe that if there's going to be change in the world, if we're going to challenge injustice and rights violations in the world, it has to come from those communities who experience these injustices firsthand. It has to come from the ground. And if we're going to come up with solutions, the solutions will only be sustained if that comes from the ground. Welcome back to another episode of the Protect the World podcast. Every month, I connect with a different not-for-profit organization that's making the world a better place. My goal is to learn about the issues they're tackling, interview the founder or director, and then share their stories with you. But I don't just want to share their stories. I want to contribute to their work as well. If you'd like to help me, you can sign up to the Patreon via the link in the show notes. The voice you heard at the beginning of this podcast belongs to Olive Moore, Interim Director at Frontline Defenders. Frontline Defenders is a human rights organization that's focused on advocacy for and protection of defenders of human rights. They have close to a thousand active cases from every corner of the globe and are working tirelessly to support human rights defenders who are facing persecution. In this episode, I speak to Olive about a range of frontline defenders' cases, including a remarkable good news story out of Iran and an attempted trip to Bahrain that didn't quite go as planned. We also discuss the many challenging nuances involved in defending human rights and some of the key values and principles that underpin this work. Olive has spent decades working across every corner of the human rights sector and has a phenomenal wealth of knowledge and experience that she shares throughout this episode. I really appreciated the opportunity to speak with someone so dedicated and passionate about human rights, and I hope you get as much out of the conversation as I did. So now I bring you Olive Moore, Director of Frontline Defenders. Uh, Olive Moore, a very warm welcome to the Protect the World podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. We're just delighted to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about Frontline and our work with human rights defenders at risk. Brilliant. Um, I want to start by asking, who are you and how do you describe yourself? Sure. So I'm Olive Moore. I am the Interim Director of Frontline Defenders, which is a global human rights organization that are based in Ireland. We work for human rights defenders all around the world, particularly human rights defenders who are at risk. Fantastic. Let's um, start with, a, I guess, a pretty basic question. What are human rights and who qualifies as a human rights defender? Well, anyone qualifies as a human rights defender and there are thousands, possibly millions of human rights defenders all around the world. So human rights are a set of core, I suppose, entitlements that people have. So they're very basic entitlements that every individual has inherently, simply by being human, of some of the most minimal things that we need in order to live a happy, healthy, productive life. They cover all kinds of different areas like civil and political rights, right, a right to free speech, a right to protest, a right to engagement, a right to your right to vote, your right to your voice, your right to being heard, but right through to economic, social and cultural rights, like your right to food, to water, um, and also then even right through the new range of rights around environmental rights, your right to a safe and secure environment as well. So these are really simple standards that we have for all of humanity 
that everybody has, but also what comes with rights are responsibilities, because we also have the responsibility to respect other people's rights. And usually when we talk about human rights, we talk about human rights in relation to the state and to governments in particular, because it's governments and states' responsibility to ensure that all of our rights are respected, are protected and upheld. Human rights defenders are then people who work to protect human rights, who work to promote human rights, and people who work on behalf of others, that they're really working for a variety of different causes in so many different places around the world, all to protect, respect, and promote human rights. Brilliant. That was an incredible summary. I feel like you've, you've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I've been working in this area for a long time now. I think about this stuff a lot, and I meet so many human rights defenders all around the world. So, Brilliant. Must be. I'm, I can't wait to hear about that, that entire journey. It sounds mm. fascinating. Um, tell me a little bit about the structure of your organization, because you seem to be quite involved at both the sort of grassroots level, but then also at the intergovernmental policy-based level. How, how do you go about achieving that? Sure. So we're, gosh, let me see. We're a small enough organization in many ways, but actually I think what's really important about us is that we're quite networked with all of the human rights defenders, the movements, the spaces, the places where human rights defenders work, particularly those who are at risk all around the world. So even though we're a small enough organization, I, I, I like to think that we're also very much part of the global human rights movement, standing with and working on behalf of and close to defenders. So the way we work is that we would have part staff of frontline defenders in various countries, but working really closely with all of the human rights defenders there, being led. I mean, the people who I mentioned at the beginning that we we work with human rights defenders who are at risk and our work is around protection of human rights defenders and the people who know what the best course of action is to be safer to be more secure are human rights defenders themselves they're the people who live with this risk every single day so i guess our organization the way we work is we spend a lot of our time listening to human rights defenders asking checking and working alongside them to go what can we do to support you and some of that might be advocacy in the eu at the un and all of these different places but some of that might be much more practical much more close to home it might be conversations around let's look at your building let's look at your house let's think about the spaces that you're in locally let's think about your community and how they're supporting you and what we can do to help you together with your community around your protection and that all of it is aligned to making human rights defenders more safe and more secure to continue to do the human rights work that they do so really it's whatever it takes if that means working at the un and that's going to help then that's what we'll do but if that means working with families together with the defender then that's what we'll do because the objective is always around protection safety security so they can do what they do brilliant um could you give an example of that more grassroots level um work that you're doing Sure. So I suppose the way we work is one of the first things we do is we have a grants program, yeah, which are really small grants, anything from between two and seven thousand euros that will go to a defender to support them in the work that they're doing. But often those grants might go to very practical things. It might well be around looking at the location that they're in. It might be something around security cameras for their offices or their home. For example, that's something very practical and very tangible. It might well be around for defenders who are at a higher level of risk. Maybe it's around relocation. 
we might say, okay, so it's really unsafe where you are at this moment in time. Perhaps we can work with you to move to another town, move to another city, you know, keep a lower profile for a period of time before you come back and continue your work. Um, phones, laptops, digital security is hugely important. You know, so we'll start conversations with defenders around how are you communicating? Where are you keeping all your data and information? How safe is that? How are we sure you're not being surveillanced under surveillance? Because this is common, something we're seeing across the board is on the increase. And how do we make sure the really sensitive information you have around other human rights defenders and yourself is kept safe and doesn't get into the wrong hands in order to compromise them and their work. So we might do something around, let's update your mobile phone, let's get a better laptop, let's put some better protection gear onto your laptop and your phone so that we're a little bit more safe in that way. It might even be well-being. It might be a conversation around you have been doing this work for eight, nine years with no break. Let's help you to take something very small, like two weeks off, to go somewhere different, to kind of detach, to strategize, to step back, to think about your work. So you can then step back in and continue to do what you're doing. Loads of different things. Again, it really just depends on what the threat. And I think that's a big part of protection work is doing that risk assessment. It's working together. Again, defenders know themselves, but sometimes someone to help you talk it through and go, well, let's identify what are the particular things about your work that make you more vulnerable? Who is it that might be targeting you and how might they be targeting you and what are the risks that you face? So therefore, when we've done that assessment, let's figure out what it is we can do to support better. Amazing. Um, Do defenders tend to reach out to you or do you find cases that you think are oh, they'll fit in well how does how does that work i think it's a mix of both definitely i think as we were so we're now 22 years old as an organization i think when we began we would have been reaching out to defenders quite a lot you know and even that whole area of understanding of protection as an area of human rights work was reasonably new as a concept i think now as we have grown much bigger and um, as risks to defenders have increased all over the world. What we're finding is that defenders reach out to us. So it's a mix of both. I mean, we try and remain as open, as accessible to defenders as we possibly can. We have even on our website, there's a secure form. Anyone can send us an email, anyone can apply for a grant, anyone. But we also have to be very networked because, of course, when you're working with any defenders, verification of checking out, well, are these people who they say they are, the work that they're doing, the level of risk. So we also need to, even regardless of how we engage, whether a defender comes to us or we go to them, we do need to do that verification and that checking with other defenders in the community before we continue to work with them as well. So it's kind of both, I'd say. Very interesting. Um I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the cases that your organization is focused on at the moment. Um, and I actually want to start with, with Gaza. And I want to avoid, I guess, a detailed analysis of the conflict just because it's rapidly evolving and this will be a week or two before this is released. But I'm more interested in how an organization like Frontline, respond, uh, Frontline Defenders responds to a situation like this. So you hear about the horrific attacks by Hamas and then Israel's devastating response. Could you walk me through how your organization reacted to all of this as it's unfolding? Sure. So we have been working in Palestine and working in Israel for many years now. So we would already have contacts with a number of human rights defenders. And human rights defenders in Palestine and in Israel will all be working non-violently, working towards peace. And this is a huge part of being a human rights defender is that you work non-violently. So we will know who those defenders are. And we'll already, in many cases in countries like this, we'll have some contact and some communication to reach out to some of the defenders. And they'll be able to point us to other defenders. You know, so we'll start with how are you? 
you? What do you need? Where are you at? Who else needs support? Who are other defenders in the region that are doing that? Um, the context in Gaza and in Palestine is quite challenging. Of course, it's quite challenging. It's hugely challenging for so many of us. But when you have a crisis, and I'm thinking of crisis in so many countries, whether it's Ukraine where we responded to, whether it's Sudan where we responded to, or you have a crisis where conflict is involved, um, one of the first things that we will do very often is relocation of human rights defenders. Because when you have widespread conflict, and in many cases like this, defenders are at risk, but everyone is at risk. The whole population is at risk. And in some cases like that, it's trying to understand what are the specific risks that human rights defenders face because of the work that they do that might even have additional risks to the general population within a context. First and foremost, the first thing you might look at would be relocation, particularly with that high level of conflict. In Gaza, that's impossible. So in other countries, we would work with defenders and say, how can we support you if this is what you want? Because defenders will decide themselves what they want to do and whether they stay or whether they go. That's always a defender's decision. And we'll say, we will support you maybe with a small grant or maybe with even, we might know, we might be working in much more detail with them in Afghanistan around trying to find routes and support safe spaces in order to travel and move um, to relocate temporarily to actually get to a safer space, first and foremost. So because, of course, contexts like that, you're talking at the highest level of risk, which is the risk of being killed. Um, so in those scenarios, it's first and foremost, how do we get to a safe space so that we can continue and look at all of the other risks around that as well? In Palestine and in, the, in Gaza in particular, that's been really challenging because, first of all, defenders can't relocate. So there isn't an option for them to move to a safer space. And secondly, communication. So when you close down communication in that. So for us, that's been a really challenging space. And even when we are getting through to defenders, it may well just be, which seems wholly inadequate at the moment, but to offer solidarity, to actually recognize and acknowledge what's happening to them and say, we're ready to help whenever we can, once we realize whatever that best route and that way to do that is. In other scenarios, it could have been a bit different. I'm thinking particularly of Sudan. So when the conflict in Khartoum broke out a couple of months back, of course, it was initially and still remained really difficult for defenders to move. But over time, some of the defenders were able to find routes to safety. We would be able to give them some emergency funding, you know, first and foremost. But then you have to figure out, well, how do you get funding into the country? Because very often the banks are always closed. So it's about creative and different routes in order to get funding for defenders to be able to move to get to safety. You're then looking at contact and communication. Again, you're back to how are you keeping in touch with others? What methods of communication are used how can we support there back to things like risk assessment or in or visibility is a huge piece how do we raise your in sometimes for protection visibility is an asset and sometimes it's not so how do we do an assessment to realize whether visibility and raising your profile is going to be something that's useful for you and if so how do we help you do that how do we support you to raise your profile and bring visibility to you as a defender in the work that you're doing there it's always really context specific yeah, that's an obvious thing to say, but it is. And it's always very much driven by defenders in the local community themselves and then knowing themselves, well, what's worked in the past? What's going to be effective? What's not? But also really importantly, decisions by defenders themselves. Do I go? Do I go with my family? Do I send my family and do I stay? You know, who stays? All of those conversations. And a lot of it is supporting defenders to, to think that through. 
you know, because in a crisis context, you don't always have a bit of headspace to someone go, okay, so if you're going to move, are you going to leave your laptop? Are you going to leave your documents? Do they need to be destroyed if you're going to travel? Let's make sure we don't leave anything that's incriminating for you afterwards. If someone's going to come and search your house, if someone's going to find your stuff. Lots of different things to think through. And a lot of it is just to go, what are the options? What will help? And how can we help you do that? Wow. That's, I, there must be so many different conflicting balances to try to work out there. Like you're talking about whether or not to raise their profile. And yeah, that must be such a difficult thing to approach. And yeah. Uh, and it's constantly changing. What might work one day mightn't work in a week's time, especially somewhere like what you're seeing in Palestine, where in Israel. And even at the moment, I mean, you started to be thinking about Gaza and Israel. I mean, we're looking at defenders who are inside Gaza who are in the most difficult situation, but also defenders who are in other parts and um, Palestinian defenders in other parts of the country are coming under attack who, where there's no profile for what's happening there. Israeli human rights defenders who have been and are speaking out very courageously and standing up and challenging some of what's happening in the region and speaking about peaceful solutions, respect for human rights, and themselves being targeted by their government by sometimes by others, by peers, by others within the community. And how do we work with all of those defenders in order to support them? Yeah, it's um, yeah, really inspiring work that you're doing. Um, turning attention to Iran now, I know that's another region that Frontline Defenders has been focusing a lot of their attention on. We recently had the, the one-year anniversary of Masomini and the Women, Life, Freedom movement, and then human rights defender Nagas Mohammadi was yeah. uh, awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize as well. So... For those who aren't aware, I guess, could you tell us a little bit more about the story of those two people and what women in Iran are fighting for at the moment? Sure. So Masha Amini was a young, a young Kurdish woman who over a year ago, 16th of September, we just had the anniversary there in the last couple of weeks, um, she died in custody, or she was killed in custody, while well, she was in custody of the morality police. She, she was taken off the streets for not um, for what they would call improper clothing and how she was wearing her clothes and taken off the street into the morality police. Now, some of this was, I mean, this isn't unusual in Iran, and women human rights defenders, human rights defenders live in a very restrictive environment, particularly women human rights defenders. And the morality police have been ever present, um, really very much, um, yeah. Uh, one of the, what was different about the case of Masha Amini was that some of it was caught on camera. And it really, so there was also some evidence of that this happened and through, and in many ways through social media, because the power of social media is something that can be hugely powerful, but also work against defenders, but it can do both. But this certainly sparked protests all across Iran, around how a young woman could be, die or be killed or die in custody at the hands of the police for an infringement, for a supposed infringement, that was something so, which might be the basic rights of women to choose to wear or not to wear whatever you want in that way. Um, it sparked off protests all over Iran. A lot of the protests were led by women, women human rights defenders who were taken to the streets, which was really powerful. And these were some of the largest protests that Iran had seen in a period of time. There had been some protests before around what we would call sort of protests around cost of living, around economic issues. But this particularly sparked off some of that, but also this issue around women human rights defenders. 
there is a phenomenal group, a women's movement, a phenomenal group of women human rights defenders in Iran. And there have been for many years who have been working on women human, women human rights issues in Iran for so long. And in many ways, a lot of these younger women were taking to the streets, responding to that, responding to the situation that is a severe curtailment of women human rights issues in Iran. Um, over the last year, we've worked with over 200 human rights defenders there, supporting them. Um, these protests, which were quite widespread at first in many of the big cities and spread to some of the smaller cities across the country, the first that they'd seen in a long time, were really, I mean, you had human rights defenders leading the protests, you had protesters out there joining, really were a really brave and defiant step. Because many of those people who took part in those protests knew what the likelihood of that severe repression and that state response was going to be. And what it was, was what you saw was that many, many human rights defenders and protesters were arrested. They were subject to detention. They faced very long-term prison sentences, um, a riot of different legal challenges taken against them in courts and that. Um, one of those leaders within the human rights movement, um, who actually wasn't involved in the Women Life Freedom protest because she was already imprisoned at this time, was Nargis Mohammadi. But Nargis Mohammadi is a phenomenal woman human rights defender. She is the director of the Defense of Human Rights Center and the president of the National Council for Peace in Iran. Um, since 1998, she has been imprisoned a whole number of times. Um, she initially started working against the death penalty in Iran and really challenging the death penalty, but then also working on the women's movement and that, and periodically has been imprisoned. Nargis hasn't seen her family in a number in over a decade. Her husband, her two children have moved to France. She hasn't been able to see her children. And even in recent years, hasn't even been able to talk to her children because while she's in prison, they'll only allow her phone calls from inside Iran. So Nargis is someone who has given up a huge amount personally but also has tremendous energy, tremendous commitment, and is very determined. Um, I last spoke to Nargis, it was two years ago when she had been released from one of her prison sentences and she had come out and she came out of prison as determined as ever to speak out on human rights issues. And I remember sitting on a panel with her where she spoke about how she had been subject to torture and to sexual harassment while in prison. She spoke about the human rights prison conditions there. And as I was sitting on that panel listening to her, it was really clear to me that she was going to end up going back to prison, which she was precisely because of her speaking out. And Nargis did all of this fully knowing that that was going to happen. In fact, before she went back to prison, she actually recorded a video for ourselves and Frontline Defenders and from her, which is available. It's on, it's on our YouTube channel and it's pretty amazing where she speaks very defiantly and says, don't worry about me. She says, I'm going back to prison again but I'm choosing to do this. I choose to take on this fight and um, we're strong. And she's really really convinced that she will in the end, the women's movement will overcome. Um, so yeah, two weeks ago, we found out that Nargis has won the Nobel Peace Prize, which is phenomenal. And not just for Nargis, this is a huge recognition of her work and everything that she's done. But it's also a recognition of the work of all of the other women human rights defenders, the whole movement. And when you bestow an award like this, not only do you give it to an individual, you give it to a community because there's no human rights defender that works independently on their own. Every human rights defender we've ever worked with works together with a group of defenders with and on behalf of a whole community of people. So over the last, we don't always get great news stories, but this is certainly one of them. And over the last few weeks, I've heard from Iranian human rights defenders and watched the celebrations and watched the joy of the recognition 
but also then them thinking about, well, how do we use this to support other human rights defenders in Iran? And Nargis herself going, how do we profile the cases of the many women human rights defenders, but not just women human rights defenders, also labor and unions, many different human rights defenders um, who are in prisons in Iran, and how do we use this to profile their case and to put further pressure in the Iranian regime in order to respond to them? It's an incredible, incredible perseverance and dedication to that cause, and um, I couldn't think of anyone more deserving of, of that prize. It's... It really is, and it's really wonderful to see the Nobel Committee mm. embracing human rights and human rights defenders because what they are saying, which is totally true, is that there is no peace without human rights and there is no human rights without human rights defenders. Um, the Nobel Committee have come out within the last year or two because last year they also awarded it to some prominent human rights defenders, prominent human rights defenders who are working in Belarus and Russia and Ukraine. And they've done a piece of work where they're looking at what they call the Sunflower Declaration because they're beginning to see and understand that many Nobel Prize winners are suffering from reprisals who have huge challenges and risks that they face. And I think the Nobel Committee are really seeing and understanding that backlash against civil society, against human rights defenders, and really understanding the importance. Again, it comes down to visibility, that this kind of profile can bring protection, but it also brings risk. And we need to work responsibly with defenders when we actually work in this type of area around recognition and that and really understand what that means and how we support them. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a, a common theme that's coming up, that um, profiling, mm -hmm. but then also making sure yes. you've got those protections in place if you're doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, turning attention now to uh, Bahrain, you mm -hmm. recently... Um, wanted to go to Bahrain, but I don't think that trip turned out quite as you had planned. Could you tell us that story? No, it didn't. Um, so Abdelhadi Al-Khawaja is another phenomenal human rights defender. Um, we know Abdelhadi well because Abdelhadi actually worked for Frontline Defenders many years ago. And he worked what for human rights. Um, he was one of our, what we call our protection coordinators. So he was right. working within the MENA region, supporting other human rights defenders, doing outreach, um, all of that work around trying to understand and see what's the best supports that we can give to human rights defenders in a variety of countries. But when the Arab Spring broke out, Abdelhadi resigned from frontline defenders and said, I need to go home and be with my people. This is a huge movement. And what we saw was Bahrain was one of the Gulf countries, one of the only Gulf countries, where actually the Arab Spring resulted in people protesting in the streets. And again, another scenario where even just protesting on the street is a hugely important, courageous and defiant act. Um, when you live in an oppressive country where some of the most basic human rights, your right to assemble, your right to come together as a group of people, your right to speak out and to actually challenge and to say what you think, your right to voice, your right to participate, all of those things are curtailed. These really basic rights that we in many countries take for granted, that a group of people can come together, can stand up, you can challenge your own government when you don't agree with what they're doing. Those things in many countries, in many authoritarian countries, are just not given. And not only are they not given, they're extremely dangerous when you do that. Abdelhadi, within a couple of weeks, because he was involved in the protests, calling for democracy in Bahrain, um, again, acting non-violently, speaking out, calling for democracy, for a bigger voice for citizens in the country, Abdelhadi was tortured and imprisoned. He was taken from his home in the middle of the night. He was tortured and severely injured um, and imprisoned for life. He's been in prison for 12 years now. Um, 
Abdelhadi is a Bahraini, but also Danish citizen. So despite this, in spite of the Danish government and the EU government and many others and ourselves, Abdelhadi's family, first and foremost, to have led a phenomenal campaign for his release, Abdelhadi is still in prison. And in some ways, I think we'd be quite critical that this is Obviously, first and foremost, this sits with the Bahraini authorities who have made this decision to imprison him and retain him. But it also sits with countries in the EU who also choose to engage and have conversations and trade in that and political dialogue and not necessarily really pushing with Abdul Hadi and other human rights defenders. He's not the um, Dr. El Singas. There are a number of other defenders who are also in jail um, for long periods of time. Um, Mariam Mariam Al-Khawaja is Abdelhadi's daughter, one of his daughters, and she has been also in her own right a phenomenal human rights defender, who in many ways, I think Mariam was always engaged in human rights issues, but with the when her father was imprisoned, you know, really became a human rights defender advocating on his behalf. And this is something you do see where often family members step up advocating for other human rights defenders who've been imprisoned. Um, Mariam She's herself, based in Bahrain as well? No, Mariam was based in Bahrain, but then was imprisoned herself and spent time in prison in Bahrain herself for her own activism, speaking out on behalf of her father. So she then left Bahrain. And when she left Bahrain, she continued to advocate and campaign and then was charged, had a court case in her absence where she was charged with uh, akin to terrorism charges working against the state. And she has another prison sentence against her in Bahrain. Abdul Hadi then, during the summer a few weeks ago, Abdul Hadi went on a hunger strike. He went on hunger strike because of the prison conditions. Um, he has a heart condition and wasn't getting adequate access to medical care, but also other issues around the prisoners were spending the vast majority of their time in their cells. They didn't get enough time out. They weren't having access to phone calls to their families. So Abdul Hadi started a hunger strike himself. But at that time, a number of other political prisoners also started a hunger strike in Bahrain. You had a scenario that escalated really quickly, where you had at one point up to 700 or more prisoners on hunger strike, which was phenomenal. You also had people, again, family members taking to the streets in, again, extremely defiant, extremely courageous act, challenging the government around prison conditions within there. Mariam and Abdul Hadi's family were extremely concerned for his well-being. They knew he was in hunger strike, but they also knew he had an underlying medical condition. So anyone particularly undertaking hunger strike with underlying medical or heart conditions puts you at a higher level of risk. And um, so, and trying to advocate with the US, with the EU, with the Danish government to intervene urgently on behalf of her father, but the case wasn't moving and nothing was happening. So Mariam made the decision publicly that she was going to travel back to Bahrain in order to try to see her father, which was a phenomenal decision considering we knew that Mariam had already a case against her and likely on arriving in Bahrain would be imprisoned herself. But Mariam made this decision and asked a number of us to accompany her on that. So myself um, and Agnes Calamar, who's the head of Amnesty International, and also Tim White, who's the head of ActionAid in Denmark, and Andrew Anderson, who's the former director of Frontline, who is a close friend of Abdul Hadi's, all said that we would accompany her on this trip in an effort to bring more publicity and in a hope that the accompaniment would bring some level of protection to Mariam against her being imprisoned. Um, Mariam spoke, did a lot of, we would, did a lot of media work to really profile her visit. So this was a really public thing. We were very clear about what we were doing. We weren't, you know, we were doing it all legally. We were trying to travel there. We were requesting to see Abdul Hadi on a humanitarian visit um, and the release of himself as a human rights defender and other human rights defenders who were there. Um, 
that trip, so we got as far as London. We were all looking to board to go to Bahrain, and then we were all told that we had been barred from the airline, wouldn't allow us to travel. So even though we paid for our trips, even though that BA, British Airways, but I also understand potentially other airlines as well, weren't willing to let us travel, which again is an interesting one because you have a number of citizens who haven't, you know, ourselves. You have Mariam, of course, in a slightly different situation, but who haven't committed any crimes, who haven't tried to travel to a country and being denied that because they're going on a human rights mission, essentially, to engage in human rights issues within the country. Now, on a more positive note, since that, um, Abdul Hadi has received adequate medical attention and care um, and also has received family visits and some better access to his family. So in that scenario, it did, we think, at least contribute and also the work of some governments as well, because I think it also prompted many governments to further engage in his case. It's a case we continue to work on. It's been 12 years. Um, he's still in prison there. It's still something that we call for is that he should be released to Denmark at this point, um, particularly because of his ill health. But that was another phenomenal, not just a phenomenal human rights defender in Abdul Hadi, but his daughter, Marian. Um, she's, she's, her, her work and her commitment to human rights in Bahrain is quite phenomenal. It's very, very impressive. He's still on a hunger strike at the moment or he's come off that? Yeah. So he came off the hunger strike once he received access to medical care, thankfully. Okay. So I think hopefully in a more stable condition currently, but still imprisoned and still with serious underlying medical conditions that we're very concerned about. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. definitely. Um, Frontline Defenders is a human rights organization, and yet I noticed a lot of your cases involve environmental rights as well. Could you speak a little bit about the relationship between human rights and environmental rights as you see it? Sure. So one of the things that we do in Frontline Defenders, which is one of the much more challenging areas of our work, is that we track the killings of human rights defenders around the world through the HRD Memorial. The HRD Memorial is a coalition of 12 different NGOs around the world who will collect all and collate all of this information for two reasons. The first reason is to memorialize, to recognize what has happened to these human rights defenders, to call it out, to name these human rights defenders and to pay homage to them and to the work that they've done. And the second is for advocacy, because we talk about risks to human rights defenders and there are so many different risks that defenders face, but the, the ultimate risk is killing is that defenders lose their life for the work that they're doing. Or, of course, there's then torture, long-term imprisonment, criminalization, defamation, all of the different things that can happen. But essentially, one of the most horrendous and, and the most basic violation of the right to life is killings. Um, last year, we documented 405 human rights defenders around the world who were killed. Um, there were most likely many more. And these are the ones that we have evidence and that we can document. And what we've seen over the last decade as we track these numbers is just increasing, increasing, increasing the killing of defenders. And um, the way back to your question around environment and human rights defenders, nearly half of those who have been killed are working on environment and indigenous issues. Working on protecting the environment is one of the most dangerous things you can do as a human rights defender. And there's often a coalition between not just the defenders who are working on environmental rights are often, not always, but often indigenous human rights defenders. So defenders who are close to the land, defenders who really understand, who, who regard the land and the resources, the water, the forests as sacred, and who regard themselves as custodians of this land. 
and who will do everything they can in order to protect it. But also defenders who live off the land, their livelihoods, their way of living is so closely connected to it. So when there are big mega projects, and there's a link here then with businesses and the whole area of business and human rights, so these mega projects who are blocking the rivers to create dams for hydroelectric projects or are mining for gold or copper or all of the different things and causing massive environmental degradation in what they're doing, or logging, huge problem around forests and logging and deforestation, what they're doing is they're removing the space in the environment that these indigenous defenders very often in communities have lived for years. So they have everything to lose within this. So as well as that close connection, that deep connection to the environment, their whole way of living, their whole community is at risk. Um, and often where we see the most brutality in their responses when it comes to killings of human rights defenders is around the environment. And we see it very much so in the Americas, particularly where you have all of those big mega projects, mining projects, all of that, where you have mass extraction, but not just the Americas. We're seeing it all over the world. We're seeing it in Ukraine. We're seeing it in Afghanistan. We're seeing it in Cambodia and Vietnam, seeing it in many African countries. And a lot of it is around resources. And a lot of it is around resource extraction. And a lot of it is around profit when it comes down to businesses and businesses operating with impunity and without accountability and not being held to account for the damage, the environmental damage and degradation, but secondly, for targeting of human rights defenders. In some cases, it's the businesses who hire private security firms who are targeting defenders. In other cases, it's governments who are working in alliance with businesses, <coughs> excuse me, who are set to profit from that. Um, in other cases, it's more complex. It's militia. It's these other groups who are also in cahoots with businesses who are all. But a lot of it comes down to profit and it comes down to this desire to remove the defenders, to threat, to intimidate, to close down the space. Um, that's the whole area of business and human rights. Increasingly, we're also seeing groups of defenders who are environmental activists who are working on that broader issue. Um, and youth human rights defenders, young people really stepping up, challenging their governments for their climate action plans being so entirely insufficient for the climate chaos that we are witnessing and will continue to witness. Um, or if you link to that, you look at mass movement of people. So all of these things are interconnected. So I look at human rights defenders who are working on migration issues. And we're seeing significant shifts of now people move for many different reasons. But one of the reasons that they move is when the environment that they're living in becomes unlivable, when it becomes untenable because of the changing climate patterns. Um, so not only is it those who are working in environment on the front line of this, but these knock-on impacts on many other defenders who are also working on this and trying to support those communities who are least responsible for what's happening to our environment, but are paying the highest price ultimately. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I live and work here in, in Peru and spent time in Colombia and Guatemala and yeah, echo everything that you've, you've just talked about, but also the importance of those, those reports that you were talking about, the, the annual reports on the number of human rights defenders who are killed are really valuable to journalists and, and that kind of thing in raising raising the profile of, of these issues and these defenders. So that's a And really this one. is one place where as well as working with the defenders at the community level around protection and um, we're also working at the higher advocacy levels and um, at the moment there's a directive going through the eu an eu directive around due diligence for environmental it's essentially around companies 
having to exercise due diligence for environmental damage and degradation and also due diligence for violations against offenders. And we are working at the EU and working with all of the EU member states to make sure that two things, that the voices of human rights defenders are included in that process, that they are heard, because the people who have, when you talk about environmental degradation and when you talk about killings of defenders, it is defenders themselves and that broad group of defenders who, who are at the forefront of this fight and who risk and lose the most. And the second part is that human rights defenders are specifically mentioned within the legislation. So there's a whole piece there around not just working for solutions in the communities, not just working for solutions in the countries and between the governments and that, but also we need a governance, it's regulation. And this is the whole area of business and human rights is one of the most under-regulated or unregulated areas. That and the role of some of the tech companies around social media, I think, are the two areas where we see there's just a dearth of any kind of accountability, any kind of regulatory yeah. environment in order to protect offenders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I found difficult in preparing for this interview was just the sheer number of cases that your organization is focused on. I think your website has close to a thousand active cases at the moment or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and it was difficult knowing that there were so many stories that deserve attention, but that we'd only get around to a few of them. But then I feel like that must be something that you experience every day. You're an NGO with, I guess, limited resources and funds, and I assume you can't devote as much time and energy to every case as you would want to. So could you tell me a little bit about how Frontline Defenders prioritizes the issues that you're focused on at any given time? Do you have a procedure for, for that kind of thing? Yeah, that that's a really good question. And it's definitely the case. We don't have, and, and not just we as Frontline Defenders, because we're not the only organization. At the beginning, we would have been one of the few organizations working on protection, but now there's many. And that's a really good thing. You know, there's global coalitions of NGOs. Many of our colleague NGOs do this work. There are others who do. So one part of it is that it's not only us. There are many others, and some of those are national organizations who can and do are at the forefront, particularly, I think, of the Americas, where there are phenomenal organizations who are doing work in human rights defender protection for many, many years. So I think that's the first part of going, it's not us alone, it's part of an ecosystem of national, regional. So there's one that, that if we can't do something, someone else can, or maybe if they can't, we can, and trying to understand whose role is it in that. Having said that, there's never enough. Of course, there isn't. We, we don't have enough for to give grants to all the applications that we get, for example. I think the two things that are really important to us is the level of risk. So that risk assessment to see we work with defenders who are at the highest level of risk. So many defenders face risk, but it's that piece of trying to understand who's at the highest level of risk. And the second piece for us as an organization is we try to reach defenders that other organizations mightn't. You know, so there will be some, and I spoke to you earlier about two very high-profile cases. Nargis Mohammadi is a high-profile case. Abdulhadi Al-Khawaji is a high-profile case. But with Nargis, we're also working with many other human rights defenders who are less high-profile, and some of whom don't want the profile. We might continue the work, and they've said, okay, well, we don't necessarily, it's not useful to name, or their families may not want them named individually if they're in prison, for example. But it's something we constantly do. You can work on the high-profile cases to push the issues and the themes to raise awareness, but at the same time, you're then using that momentum to work on the other cases, the forgotten, the unnamed, all of those defenders. And it's something we're constantly challenging ourselves on. Are we reaching? Are we reaching outside the main cities? 
Are we reaching into new groups of defenders, doctors, for example? When there's a conflict, who are the people who actually see where the violations are happening? Doctors and hospitals are the ones that see who's coming in and what's happening. They're the ones who may be documenting for future war crimes and cases in ICJ who don't see themselves as human rights defenders, haven't done this work in the past, and particularly maybe at a higher level of risk because they don't necessarily have the skills or the experience around protection because it's not something they've had to do. So are you aware of who are the different new groups, young human rights defenders and environment we talked about? You know, that might, again, just not necessarily have been in this experience so we can work together and say, okay, well, let's pause, let's think through. If you do this, what might be the repercussions? And when those repercussions come, what might you do then? So it's just that planning part. So it's a little bit around profile, so really understanding um, that within the human rights community, human rights protection is a really important thing and needs to be supported and protected. And it's around us and others together really trying to reach beyond the high profile defenders <coughs> to more rural women, different groups where we know they mightn't have as much support or protection. Brilliant. It all sounds like incredible work that, that Frontline Defenders is doing. So well done. Um, I'd like to shift focus now to you as an individual, if that's all right. And I'm interested, how old were you when you first sort of became interested in humanitarian issues, human rights, these kinds of things? Was there a specific moment or an event that you remember capturing your attention? I have a particular one that I do remember. Um, I remember when I was 16 and joining Amnesty International. And at that point, you had to be 16 to join. I think you can join at an earlier age now. But back then, you and I remember waiting until I was 16. And when I was 16, joining. And at that point, a lot of, I mean, Amnesty is a global membership-based organization, but so much of their campaigns were prisoners of conscience, and it was letter writing. And I remember getting engaged first and doing letter writing and becoming involved in that and then joining a group. And and then, yeah, I think that was probably, but I guess I, I also, my own mother at home is very active within our local community, not necessarily global issues at all, but something much closer to home. You know, she's involved at the time with the elderly, with the groups, with the all of the various different groups and doing different stuff. So it would have been a part of my upbringing to see that in a more community level closer to home. And I think the political part of human rights defenders, what is what is was appealed to me as I got older. Yeah. You grew up in Dublin? Close to Dublin, Ashburn, okay. which is just a village okay. outside. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And who were your key role models or influences when you were younger? Was there an important teacher that inspired mm. you or a public figure that you looked up to? Yeah, definitely a teacher. I remember a teacher when I was in fourth class. Let me see, what age are you in fourth class? You're usually about 10 years old. And I had a teacher who did. And I remember doing work on human rights education, that teacher introducing that into the class and the concept of human rights, which would have been pretty new back then. I think at least human rights education is a concept and idea. I think it's much more, much more common now across the curriculum in Ireland. And I think that teacher speaking about inequality, speaking about rights, bringing that into the classroom would have been hugely important. Yeah. I also worked, so I would have liked most people in Ireland, I would have gone to a Catholic school, um, certainly a Catholic secondary school. And I think um, I think some of the work of the church, some of the work of some of the most amazing human rights defenders I've met are priests and nuns working in various communities. I'm thinking of priests and nuns, and some of them are Irish priests and nuns who are in Nigeria, in Kenya, who were really, really grounded, living with communities, challenging and fighting injustice, putting their own lives at risk 
Um, I think of some of the nuns who would have worked with people with um, HIV AIDS in the early days when no other people would do that. I think of some of the, I'm thinking of Gabriel Dolan, who worked in Kenya on land rights and was arrested for protests again and again and again. And so in some ways, I think through schooling, I was exposed to some of that sort of the more radical human rights based part of the church, which is a really powerful base um, when it's activated and some phenomenal human rights defenders. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that takes me into my next question, because I know you worked in Kenya and South Sudan and Somalia. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that period. How did you end up there and what were you doing? Yeah, so that was after. So when I went to college, I did a course in human rights, which was just I, I think I had gone to college initially to study social work and be a social worker, which is kind of where I saw my route. But then I picked up a course in human rights in my first year and I suddenly went, oh, no this is a thing. You can study this. There's a discipline, the law that comes behind human rights. I went, this is really interesting. So I kind of switched. I, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to go to college and then have access to that. So I kind of switched what I was studying, went, no, I'm actually much more interested in the international side, the legal side, the rights side. Um, so after college, I then was went on to get a master's in human rights. Um, and from there, then picked up some of my first work. And some of it was, I mentioned the church there, and I'm thinking particularly of TROCRA, which is the Irish Catholic Development Agency, who do some phenomenal human rights work, really, really good human rights work. And, and I remember um, I went to Kenya with TROCRA to work, and I was as a human rights intern initially, and then as kind of got a job there with them and spent time. I, I often think back and think of how much I learned I'm not sure how much I contributed at that point, but I certainly learned it was hugely formative. How old were you at this age? I was 22. 22 maybe I was 23. Yeah. yeah, so just coming out of college early on, but it was hugely formative for me. It really, again, I met amazing Kenyan human rights defenders. And at that time, there really, and there still is, really a struggle for democracy in Kenya, a struggle for land, indigenous rights and women's rights, all of these issues. And people who were so dedicated and so focused and so determined and rightly so that they would and could change things for the better on behalf of all of these different groups that they worked with. And I think for me, that was hugely, hugely inspiring. I spent a little bit of time in Somalia, but again, I was listening and learning. I was listening to Somali women working with other Somali women around issues like FGM, issues like forced marriages within their own community. Um, and just the privilege of listening, simply, I had nothing to say on that and no experience of that, but to listen to other women of their own community engaged together around a process of education, around strategizing, around thinking, how can we address these issues within our own community, which is hugely empowering to see, essentially. Working in Sudan in the conflict, because at this stage, Sudan was very much still coming out of conflict. Um, and this was South Sudan. Of course, it was Sudan at the time, but South Sudan now, you know, an impoverished this country. This is pre-independence? Pre yes, it was around the time of, it was exactly when the accords were being negotiated at that period. But you had a country that had been underdeveloped for decades, that didn't even have the most basic infrastructure so not only were you talking about trying to understand what would a democratic system look like, what would free press look like, the media, we worked particularly on what was at the time the only free independent newspaper in South Sudan and the importance of that around information, access to information. I think I had the, yeah, the privilege of seeing so many different rights issues, but also so many different phenomenal human rights defenders from those countries leading, doing that work. And then able to try and see and interrogate, well, what's our role in that? How do we 
stand behind and support? Um, how are we responsible for some of that? That if you look at the global systems, how have we particularly, it's so obvious when it comes to climate change, you know, it's because of the industrialization and the advances and the carbon emittances that we have allowed ourselves that we get to. And then where does it land? And all of the whole piece around decolonization and the legacy of what that is and what that means. So a lot of thinking around, well, what's our role? You know, and moving so far beyond what a charity model to a rights model, essentially. And I think that was really formative for me then to really begin to understand what a rights-based model and understanding of global politics looks like. I guess on that, I noticed you spent a couple of years working for the World Bank. What was your role there and what was that experience like? Yeah, that was, I had the chance to move to the US for a couple of weeks and I had spent quite a bit of time protesting outside the World Bank for a number of yeah. years before that. I certainly had been part of particularly <laughs> some of the work of the bank in the Latin American countries I'm thinking yep. of and some of the really Structural destructive practices of that. Yeah. Um, and then I had the opportunity to join the bank for a couple of years. Um, and I think for me, that was about really understanding how these systems work. And understanding how do you change from the outside, how do you change from the inside? I think there are, in order to have, we are faced by extremely complex, difficult challenges globally. And the solutions to those challenges, <coughs> excuse me, the solutions to those challenges are complex and difficult. There is no easy answer. And it requires people in every part of the system whether you're inside, whether you're outside, whether you're on the far radical edge or whether you're not quite so radical, but you might be much more of a doer. It needs everything, I firmly believe. And I wanted to, and I had a good chance to be inside and try and understand, well, what does that huge, I mean, the bank's huge. You've got this with the legacy. Now, they had changed their mandate as I joined. They had moved towards this new mandate around resolving poverty. I think the bank has a long way to go to change the culture and practices. I think there's been a bit of a shift um, I worked particularly in the GPSA, which was the Global Partnership for Social Accountability, which worked directly with civil society. And the part of that mandate was around the role of civil society working together with the bank to hold governments and institutions accountable, probably as close to human rights as you could get in the bank at that point. Um, I found huge learning, really, really, it's, it's interesting work. I worked with some brilliant people inside the bank. There are some really good people who are trying to bring about change, but there's also a really big institution with really embedded incentives that aren't necessarily the right incentives for, you know, aren't necessarily always the mission, which is poverty alleviation. There are different types. Um, I did learn a lot, but I think in the end, I felt quite disconnected. I felt really removed from those people who we talk about. I firmly believe that if there's going to be change in the world, if we're going to challenge injustice and rights violations in the world, it has to come from those communities who experience these injustices firsthand. It has to come from the ground. And if we're going to come up with solutions, the solutions will only be sustained if that comes from the ground. And I think some of that time in the bank left me feeling a bit removed from that and that opportunity to come back, to work in Trocra, to come to Frontline, where you work with those who are right there, who are living this in their everyday lives, who understand their communities and the challenges that they face and understand how the complexity, because it is, and I know it's an easy cop out to say, but it is so complex. And if we don't have people who actually understand that complexity and understand how to navigate that to find the solutions, and we can't possibly, the bank can't possibly do that. That's not possible. They need the voices right down in the communities to do that. So. 
That's really interesting. I guess if you were to picture like a spectrum between pragmatism and, and idealism, um, mm. where, where do you put yourself as an individual on that in the work that you're doing? Gosh, that's a hard question. <laughs> See, I don't know if it's a spectrum. No? I don't okay. think it's one or the other necessarily. Um, I think I try, I think I have to work hard to hold on to my idealism. Because I think without, if you don't have, and maybe if I'm not sure if I'm understanding them in the same way that you do, but I think if you don't have an optimistic, to a degree, um, idealistic vision, you can get so lost. But at the same time, it kind of comes back down to, I also realize that these are, I know I said it before, but incredibly complex challenges that we're facing, which are getting more and more complex. We're moving into a new era of multi-crisis, perma-crisis, essentially, um, which is layered one on top of the other. And we have to be pragmatic in how we're going to respond to those. I think it depends. Maybe it depends each day how I'm feeling, in which <laughs> space you're in, in which group of defenders you're talking to, where you can move from one. I like and that. I think it's being yeah. able to be a little bit um, flexible because yep. I think there's a need for both. Yeah, that's a really good, good response. Um, what advice would you give to a young person who's interested in working in the humanitarian or human rights sector and thinking late high school, undergraduate at uni, mm. that sort of age? I think two things. I think, first of all, it starts at home. You don't have to go far away to do human rights work. You, will, you just have to step outside your front door. And even in our homes, this is where we find this. So I think the first thing is this idea of I have to go away and do all of this. First of all, it starts really close to our inner homes, within our homes, within our relationships, and then within our communities. But there's lots that you can do. And something I firmly believe is that the experiences of poverty and justice right here in Ireland on our doorstep are the very same experiences that ISIL and Defender shared with me in Kenya and Somalia and Sudan. The experience of oppression is the same no matter where you are. And the responses are the same, that bottom-up framing from communities. The risks are different. That's what's different. I think people in certain countries face a far tremendous higher level of risk for doing that work. So I think the first thing is that it starts close to home. It starts with local groups. We don't have to look far to find a groups who are discriminated against, who are oppressed, who are living in poverty, who we can work and stand up and work alongside and support. Um, I think the second thing I'd say is be be careful about, be not careful, be considered about who you engage with. Okay. Because not all NGOs are the same. Right. What do There's you mean There's a by that? very different vast. So I kind of talked a bit about a charity model to a rights-based model. There's a huge difference in the approach that different organizations take. And I think just being an organization working in global issues, just the very simple mantra of do no harm, is really hard to achieve because you can do harm in all kinds of ways without even realizing good intention isn't enough. And I think a lot of people who engage in this space are very good intentioned, but aren't necessarily really stopping and listening to those who experience this, to those who understand it, to those who are living in these contexts. And if you're going to do work on this, that has to be your starting point. If you and many people do, you enter it for different ideas of charity or we can help or ego sometimes or all of these different things that come with that, then it's the wrong starting point. So it's more about really, and some of that is doing the work yourself, really interrogating what are your own motivations 
What are your own values? Um, how do you align with those who are on the front line of this? And how do you line up and support that? And then pick the organizations that align to that, yeah. essentially. That's really, really good advice. I want to ask you about your toughest, most challenging day or experience working for frontline defenders. And then I also want to ask you about your best, most rewarding day or experience. And I'll let you decide which one you want to talk about first. Gosh, um, start with the toughest. There's loads of hard days. Um, probably Afghanistan. Probably the days after Afghanistan, probably a couple of weeks after when we have never before seen so many human rights defenders face such a high level of risk in such a short time, in just a short period, within 48 hours. We did see it coming to a degree. We have been tracking killings of defenders in Afghanistan and have been talking about that. I don't think, though, the scale at which the, I don't think anyone saw how fast the Afghan government and those troops capitulated, essentially. But what you had was a scenario where the international community had spent billions of euros and dollars building, essentially building a human rights community and calling them that, going in there and talking about women rights, talking about which is all, so literally building up thousands of human rights defenders and then dropping them just like that and dropping them in the context when the borders closed and where no one could move. And the risk, which was turned really quickly, was a risk to, I mean, all women in Afghanistan face such tremendous risk. Men in Afghanistan who stand up, who speak out, face tremendous risk, but particularly human rights defenders. So anyone who had any level of profile very quickly became a target. And we did some phenomenal work. We have an amazing team working together with Afghan human rights defenders who did phenomenal work around supporting some of those defenders, around finding safe passage, around relocation. But certainly within the few weeks that followed, it was certainly overwhelming. We have um, emergency lines and we would have had defenders calling us and contacting us and conversations with defenders who were in the worst circumstances and knowing that it was incredibly difficult. Um, I think it feels a little bit similar with defenders in Gaza over the last couple of weeks where we see defenders who are themselves and their families and may not be necessarily targeted because they're a defender. They're simply stuck in along with all of the civilians in some of these very difficult situations. So I think for me, it's when you know there's often we're able to help, even if it's something small we can do. But it's when you're in scenarios where you feel you're not able to or where it's going to take time for that as well. So that's really, and I think that's hard for our team as well when we feel there's nothing we can do. And I think that particularly happens in conflict situations where the whole yeah, Sudan, again, where you had all of the defenders, defenders who we know really well, who are colleagues, friends, and you're constantly checking in going, you know, where are they? Are they okay? Have they managed to move? Yeah. Um, on the positive, wow, I have lots of positive, and that's the point why we continue and do this work. Amazing. Um, two weeks ago, Nargis, when we found out Nargis is the Nobel Peace Prize, that's hugely. Um, last week, I was in the US last week where we had a an event in the US Senate where we're working with some trying to work on there's an act coming through at the moment in the US around support for human rights defenders and we were bringing defender voices to speak directly to that around what defenders need and I met three or four defenders there who are just phenomenal to just sit and listen to what they're doing and <coughs> um, you can't but be hopeful yeah fantastic 
Um, I'm aware of time. We're almost done. I have a couple of like quick fire questions that I like to ask everyone. Are you oh, God. Okay for that? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First question. You're allowed to pick one person, living or dead, and you get to live their entire life from start to finish. So you pause your life right now. You live their life experiencing everything they experience, good and bad. And then you come back to your life with all of their memories. Who do you choose? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That's really <laughs> hard. Um, a little bit like the stuff we had on the World Bank. Maybe I'd choose someone that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm low to say. I'm really useless at quickfire. This isn't working at all. But not necessarily <laughs> one of the human rights defenders who are doing amazing work. Maybe yeah. I think it's more important we choose someone who's one of the aggressors, who's someone who's working on the other side, who's someone who's to really try and understand what are the motivations and where do people come from. And I'm really yeah. reluctant to name who because I don't want to give any profile to it. But I'm yeah. more thinking you shift to the other side and really hear and understand that that would be awful. So maybe not. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah. you're in, uh, we're talking the whole, whole life. Like, mm -hmm. it's not. Yeah, okay, maybe not. No, I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe give me a day or an hour that might just be enough yeah. in order to gather yeah. intelligence and figure out but that's my first instinct i think it's really important that we understand people's motivations and where they come from and yeah. what they do you know and I mean, so much of it is political that's, that's impressive that your first instinct is that level of empathy so that's yeah. oh i don't think i empathize i really don't want to <laughs> but yeah maybe it is <laughs> it's not an attempt at empathy it's an attempt at strategy <laughs> yeah okay fair enough um, you wake up tomorrow and find you've been elected president of the world. You've got full mm. power. Everyone's supportive of what you're doing. You don't have to compromise to win votes or anything like that. What's the first thing you do? Business and human rights. We have to hold businesses. There are businesses in the world today whose entire profits are higher than the GDP of countries. Our whole model doesn't work. We have to find a way to hold governance, essentially, governance of businesses and holding businesses accountable. Yeah, yeah. I just finished reading um, Cobalt Red about the cobalt mines in the Congo and that, that bottom rung of the global supply chain for the electric battery industry and that kind of thing. And it was it is just nothing. Devastating. I've been to yeah. gold mines in Honduras, Tanzanite mines in Tanzania, various different places, mines in it's devastating when you see what yeah. what's happening and what we allow and facilitate. Yeah. And actually the fix is not that hard. We can do no. it in other areas. It's actually not that hard. So that strong yeah. legal accountable framework, you just have to make it so the disincentive is so high. So yeah. you're legally accountable for what you do and you're going to be hit with your profit line. And once you make the disincentive so high, those companies will change their practices. It'll just happen. It'll follow. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, two more questions. Firstly, what are some other organizations that inspire you and whose work you admire? And this Most, is a selfish question. I'm just looking yeah. for new organizations. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Mostly grassroots organizations closest to defenders. I think of Udefegua in Guatemala. I think of uh, Somos Defensores in Colombia. I think of the Afghan Women Human Rights Network. Um, so in most countries, um, there are defenders, um, organizations who are close to the ground, who are doing this work in a phenomenal way so it's really there loads of those amazing um a final question for you if people were to donate money to frontline defenders what kinds of things would that money go towards probably to our grants program essentially first and foremost which is small grants 
five, usually on average around three to four thousand euros moving fast. We aim for 48 hours. It's not always possible, but that's certainly what we aim for in emergency situations directly into the hands of defenders to do really practical, tangible, immediate things, often moving. Often it just pays for flights, for bus fares, for um, and also to sustain them. When these defenders move, they end up moving and having to, they lose their livelihoods, they lose their home, they lose everything, and they have to sustain themselves in whole new environments for periods of time. Um, and what it actually then supports is the work to continue. That's what you're doing. You're supporting a person who's in crisis, but you're supporting a human rights cause and a fund to do that. Um, and you can do that online on our website if you want to make a donation. So it's always welcome. Oh, before I forget, one, uh, I believe your organization has a podcast as well. Do you want to tell we us do. a little bit about it quickly? Yes, we do. So we have a podcast, which is Voices of Human Rights Defenders. So um, we can, it's available, all of it available on our website. Um, our most recent one is actually with Mary Lawler, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders. We just, because this is, this year is the 25th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights Defenders, 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So whereas generally our podcast is Defenders very often, so before that, we had a human rights defender from Ukraine speaking about their work. So most of the time, we will the voices of defenders directly from the ground. But this particular one was with Mary Lawler, who's the UN Special Rapporteur, because we thought it was an opportune moment with 25 years of having a UN declaration, naming human rights defenders, explaining who they are and what they do, and how important that's been for the whole protection of defenders movement. Brilliant. Well, the idea with this podcast is that every month I want to feature a different not-for-profit organization and then I also run a Patreon where people can support the project and half the money helps keep me keep telling stories and then the other half goes directly to those organizations. So I'll be sending that donation over to Frontline Defenders very shortly. Um, oh, wow, big... brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> um, so a big thank you to all the amazing people who support this project and an even bigger thank you to you, Olive, for taking the time to, to chat with me about all of the incredible work that you're doing. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much. Brody, thanks so much. I really enjoyed being here today. We don't always get the time to stop and reflect a little bit and share. So it's always nice to do that. And it's always nice to profile defenders like Abdul Hadi, Mariam, his daughter, Nargis, to get to. They currently can't speak themselves because they're in prison. So it's a bit of an honor to be able to speak for them. And I hope sooner when they're freed, they will be able to talk to you directly because that would be even more compelling to hear straight from them. That would be that would be brilliant. Oh yeah. Thank you so much, Olive. Take care. Thank you. That was Olive Moore, Interim Director at Frontline Defenders. The key impression I got throughout this conversation was that I was talking to someone who had really put the work in. A lifelong learner who has spent her entire career trying to analyze human rights from every possible perspective. From her university study to work with human rights organizations like Amnesty and Trocra, intergovernmental bodies like the UN and the EU, global institutions like the World Bank, and most importantly, grassroots organizations and individuals who are on the front lines of human rights issues across the world. I found it particularly difficult to choose three points to reflect on for this episode because there were just so many valuable pieces of wisdom that Olive shared throughout. But we'll start with this one. So Mariam made the decision publicly that she was going to travel back to Bahrain in order to try to see her father, 
which was a phenomenal decision considering we knew that Mariam had already a case against her and likely an arriving in Bahrain would be imprisoned herself. But Mariam made this decision and asked a number of us to accompany her on that. So myself um, and Agnes Calamar, who's the head of Amnesty International, and also Tim White, who's the head of ActionAid in Denmark, and Andrew Anderson, who's the former director of Frontline, who is a close friend of Abdul Hadi's, all said that we would accompany her on this trip in an effort to bring more publicity and in a hope that the accompaniment would bring some level of protection to Mariam against her being imprisoned. The whole story of Mariam el Khawaja's determined efforts to support her father by attempting to return to Bahrain is incredible, especially alongside the heads of Frontline Defenders, Amnesty International and ActionAid. And while it was inspiring to hear that their actions did result in the improvement of Abdul Hadi's conditions, it's concerning that even pressure from international governments, media organisations and three of the world's leading human rights organisations wasn't enough to bring about Abdul Hadi's release to Denmark. The next point I'd like to highlight is this. So I kind of talked a bit about a charity model to a rights-based model. There's a huge difference in the approach that different organizations take. And I think just being an organization working on global issues, just the very simple mantra of do no harm is really hard to achieve because you can do harm in all kinds of ways without even realizing good intention isn't enough. And I think a lot of people who engage in this space are very good intentioned, but aren't necessarily really stopping and listening to those who experience this, to those who understand it, to those who are living in these contexts. And if you're going to do work on this, that has to be your starting point. If you and many people do, you enter it for different ideas of charity or we can help or ego sometimes or all of these different things that come with that, then it's the wrong starting point. I hadn't come across this rights-based versus charity framing before, but it's something that immediately resonated with me. With charity, it's easy to distance yourself from the issue and then feel good when you decide to participate. It assumes inaction as the default and praises those who take action as going above and beyond what is expected of them. But a rights-based approach flips this on its head and adds a layer of humility to the equation. It frames global justice as a responsibility, an obligation, and it acknowledges the fact that many of those who lack human rights around the world do so at least to some degree because of the privileges we enjoy in wealthy nations and because of the ongoing legacy of colonization. Until we live in a world where every human is afforded the rights they deserve, those of us who live in relative luxury must be willing to sacrifice some level of comfort in order to bring about that world. The final point I wanna emphasize is this. I think if you don't have an optimistic, to a degree, um, idealistic vision you can get so lost but at the same time it kind of comes back down to I also realize that these are I know I said it before but incredibly complex challenges that we're facing which are getting more and more complex we're moving into a new era of multi-crisis perma-crisis essentially um, which is layered one on top of the other and we have to be pragmatic in how we're going to respond to those I really liked Olive's emphasis that pragmatism and idealism don't have to be opposites. 
It's not about deciding whether to work inside or outside the system, or choosing between more or less radical solutions, but rather about working pragmatically towards an idealistic goal. If you'd like to support Frontline Defenders, you can donate to them directly by visiting frontlinedefenders.org donate. And you can follow them on all the usual social media channels as well. On behalf of the amazing people who support this project, I was able to make a donation of 100 US dollars to Frontline Defenders. If you'd like to help me give more money to more amazing NGOs in the future, please consider signing up to the Patreon via the link in the show notes for as little as $5 a month. In the show notes, you'll also find links to all the different people and organizations that we mentioned during this conversation. Another big thank you to everyone who supports this podcast and to Olive Moore for being keen to chat with me about the incredible work of her and her team. I hope you found Frontline Defenders as inspiring as I did. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Protect the World.